face it. Tighter. You just take the jackpot. Octopus was weak. Call me Doctor Octopus. Poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom. Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion. It's a conspiracy, I tell you. They're all working together to raise my blood pressure. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back to another episode of the Spectacular Radio. I am Zach Joyner. Webmaster of Spidey-Do.com, the website that powers the show, and uh, I am joined by Mr. Gerard Delatour this episode. Hello. And uh, Mr. Greg Bashansky. He's going to introduce our guests. Hi. And All right. And joining us this month is the supervising producer and story editor, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. And his partner on the series, the supervising producer and director, Victor Cook. Hey, glad to be here. Jennifer won't be joining us this month. She's off storming the castle, but she'll regale us with tales next month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, we're very happy to have both of you guys on, and Greg, it's, it's nice to have you back as well. And uh, Thank Always. you for being back on the show. And Vic, we're really glad to have you on. Yeah, glad to be here. So this month... Um, yeah. Vic? Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, this you... month we're discussing episode th- three, Natural Selection. Yeah. And yeah, uh, very visually interesting episode, so I'm really happy to have you here. I mean, all the episodes are visually interesting, but this one is worth. I mean, the atmosphere in this episode is terrific. Oh, thank yeah, you. It's, yeah, it seemed like you went with a little bit darker tone on purpose, obviously, with the uh, content. Uh, that That's really, really cool. They reflect that. Well, yeah, the, you know, when we got into uh, thinking about how we were going to tell the story visually, one of the things that. Uh, we immediately immediately went to was like let's do this like a classic uh, horror movie, like a werewolf movie, um, because of the lizard's transformation. Um, you know that component of it. We thought let's let's do that. So if you watch episode one and two, the day and the night colors are a certain similar palette, which is sort of our series palette for day and night. And for this episode and this episode only, we went with a special night palette for after when Connor turns into the lizard. So it was a definite choice. And, you know, just getting a little ahead of ourselves, when you see the first Goblin episode, we went with a even different nighttime palette for just only the Goblin episodes. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll uh, actually open it up to Gerard, since he's the artist. you got, you, you got several questions there, Gerard. I wanted to kind of yeah. let you hit them. Hit them up since you're. This is your first time on the show with these guys. True, but this is also Vic's first time on the show. So I'm just curious what your backstory is with Spider-Man. Whether you read the comics as a kid or how you came into into getting this job and to working on the oh, show. Oh yeah, well I'm I'm uh, of the same generation as Greg. So uh, you know I grew up with those original comic books. You know really you know the later part of the Ditko. Uh, era and definitely the Ramita uh, era, and of course when that original animated Spider-Man show came on first run, I saw it as a kid. You know, fell in love with the theme song like everybody else. So that was my introduction to the character and growing up loving the character. And um, so when this came along, uh, it was just a great opportunity to sort of like you know, Greg and I really wanted to bring back that that experience of the first time you, you meet this character to another generation. Um, 
as a teenager. Very cool. Pass along to one of you guys if you have a question. Um, Vic, how did you uh, get hooked up with Greg? Uh, let's see, Greg and I both worked at Disney TV Animation uh, years ago. Uh, he, you know, I didn't know him that well at first. He was an executive, and I was uh, storyboarding on various shows. And then uh, I got assigned uh, on a show called Gargoyles, which was created by Greg, and so that's when I got to know him a little better. And uh, and how I really got to know him a little more was is we were both on a, an ill-fated show called Atlantis. And um, and when that show uh, sort of <laughs> went down, uh, we sort of had a meeting together talking about, hey, let's like start pitching our, our own shows. And uh, what attracted me to wanting to team up with Greg was uh, the world building he did on Gargoyles. I really wanted him to do that on the show idea that I was bringing to him. So um, that's how I first got hooked up with Greg. Okay. Now, uh, you guys have also not only done uh, animation, but you all have done comic work together, right? Is that what? Well, we, we have a comic book series called Mechanations, the three-issue series, and that's actually what I was referencing. That was a, oh, okay, okay. That was actually an animated uh, show idea that we put together uh, some, uh, not, uh, some years ago. Um, and, uh, and that was before Spider-Man. And then while we were on Spider-Man, uh, you know, being at Comic-Con and promoting the show, uh, we thought, hey, why don't we put this out as a comic book and see what happens from there. Um, so that And that kind of happened after Spider-Man. Okay. Okay, here's a question. Uh, go on, Vic. Actually, is, you know, I don't think I would have gotten a Spider-Man job without Vic, and Vic wouldn't have gotten a Spider-Man job without me. It just sort of worked out that way. I uh, Vic is the one who told me that they were um, doing a new Spider-Man show and talking to potential writer, showrunner types. Uh, so I made a phone call, and I got a job interview on that. Um, I think we talked about this a couple yeah, of episodes the- ago, but... You know, 10 months later when I got the actual job, um, you know, they asked me who I wanted to bring in to be my partner on the show, and Vic was absolutely my first choice. We had to lure him away from, uh, what were you doing at Disney? Uh, House was, of Mouse? Was, yeah, I was directing House of Mouse. Uh, I'll go back. You know, I guess I, I glossed over it. I was directing on Hellboy Blood and Iron when I, I first got the call from Sony about Spider-Man, and this is like a good nine, ten months, almost a year before uh, they uh, they started production. And uh, and uh, you know, and Greg and I were still working on our mechanation idea, so we st- still would talk to each other every couple of weeks. And and um, we're even friends. It's weird. Yeah, <laughs> coworkers and friends. Yeah, yeah the exactly. Odds. And uh, and I mentioned it to him actually more like with the assumption that he. Um, uh, had had already met, and uh, uh, so he found found that for me. But it's just exactly like you said, you know. I told him about it. He got in. He resuggested me, you know, and um, and it it worked out. Yeah. Wonderfully. Okay, here's a question. I'm going to toss to you, Greg. The lizard is considered by a lot of people, myself included, kind of a one note villain. But I do like what you've done with him. What was your process in going about adapting the lizard? I noticed he doesn't speak in 
this, and in the comics, he's been speaking for a long time sometimes, except when he doesn't. But um, what were your thoughts when you were adapting this character? Well, I think that, and we discussed this both uh, Vic and myself, and also uh, with uh, uh, Sean Galloway, who designed uh, all our characters, and uh, um, and Jamie Thomason, our voice director, and we chose uh, Dee Bradley Baker to play Kurt Connors in episode one and two, very much in mind with what Dee's able to bring uh, as one of his many talents is that he can create these incredibly monstrous sounds out of his mouth. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. And so we knew early on that we weren't going to have Lizard talk, that we were going to really play him as this bestial creature um, and so for us, the development of the character is more about Kurt, I think, than about Lizard himself, you know, uh, that idea of the reptilian brain taking over, um, the idea of Kurt wanting to do something positive, but taking sort of crazy risks, um, in order to do it. Um, the idea of the family man with the wife and son, uh, that, he also, in essence, puts at risk, um, not just physical risk, but he's putting his whole family at risk by doing this. We played that out. But we didn't bring Lizard back in the first two seasons. We played out the repercussions of Lizard having come out, so to speak, uh, throughout the rest of uh, um, season one and season two. Lizard is never, anytime Kurt's on screen, there's never far away from uh, your mind um, and the question of whether or not Lizard might come back is always uh, interesting. And we had plans uh, down the road, but I think that really it was more about developing Kurt, you know, developing a guy who you liked, but who you saw was doing some things maybe with a good, end in mind, but, you know, his means were very questionable. Well, you did bring Lizard back in the radio play where he was under the control of Calypso, and was that going to happen in season three? I'm sorry, that's a spoiler question, but... <laughs> the radio play is, was just a fun thing. It was our, you know, that we did at the gathering. I don't, you know, don't take anything that took place in that too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. I'm going to dovetail to Vic about, we talked about development on the writer's side with Greg. What was, what was the visual side? What was the process of, with, with that? Well, well, you know, Greg just mentioned Sean Galloway, who is like a super obviously important component of the show because he, he, he was really visually casting the characters. And, you know, in some characters, Sean hit it out of the park, like right away, like J. Jonah Jameson and others, took more tries to get it. And I think the lizard was one of them. Um, you know, the inspiration was obviously many different comic books, uh, versions of them. And, um, but I, I want to give a little credit to the episode director. I mean, this is a team effort and he actually did a sketch. His name is Dave Bullock. And so Sean saw that and then Sean cheeksified it. You know what I mean? He went over it, that with his style. And I think that's how we came, um, to the lizard, um, but uh, just to go back a little bit when you talk about the, the darker tone of the episode, you know, the horror movie was definitely uh, 
one of the motifs. And also this episode was allowing us to try some sort of monochromatic color sequences. You see this in some feature animation, like a, like Lion King, for instance, when Scar is in the cave and it looks like a Nazi propaganda film and it kind of goes all green, you know, like that. You don't really see that much in TV, but we experimented with that in this episode. So if you rewatch the teaser where Dr. Connors is in his bathroom uh, injecting himself, you'll see it's kind of like the sort of greenish gold monochromatic scheme. And we kind of did a bluish scheme in uh, in the tunnel. So we were really um, uh, trying to push uh, the envelope in that way. Um, uh, in terms of character design, by the way, I'm going to go off on a little tangent. This episode, I'm glad we're talking about this episode, and Greg will remember this. We spent a lot of our development time before the first episode just kind of getting everybody on board, like this is the style of the show. So when we started, we had all the main cast, and when we had our first episode, we were like really scrambling to fill New York, fill those classrooms, fill the bugle. I mean, there's all these other people who don't even talk, who are they have to be in you know in the background. Um, so uh, we didn't already have that when we started episode one. And uh, so episode three, if you track the story, remember Peter gets water balloons thrown at him in the middle of the quad of his high school. So we had to have all those incidental characters there, you know, laughing at him. And, uh, you know, not the next day, but sort of like in real time chronologically, he gets on a bus with Gwen and goes to uh, his job at the college. He's walking through campus a little bit and you see other characters. Well, you can't reuse the character you just saw because it's, we just left there. And then um, that night, Dr. Connors turns into the lizard and a chase ensues down into the subway platform, which of course starts above ground and we need those characters. You get to the subway platform, a ton more characters, and he ends up on the subway and crashes in one of the cars and it's a whole new set of characters. So that this episode practically designed... <laughs> New York City for us, just in this one episode. So I just want to let you give you that little behind the scenes on character design. Well, the yeah, we like great. behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal. The trouble you were talking about the color stuff earlier. We this was the episode, as I recall, where we actually had some trouble from, uh, you know, with monitors miscalibrated uh, yeah. and. Yeah, another and behind Marvel behind the sort of uh, reacting to yeah. Uh, another another behind the scenes is we did our Comic Con uh, trailer and the first two episodes with uh, these are the monitors that were already there from when the studio was doing the Boondocks and then all those are taken out and replaced with these brand new shiny Cintiqs and uh, we look at the character. In theory, should have been a good. Huh? In theory, that should have been a good thing. Well, yeah, and they look great on those monitors, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, the person responsible for uh, making sure those things calibrated, it didn't happen. And what we were looking at was actually, if you saw, it was somehow like a 10% difference of brightness or darkness. So, um, uh, yeah, it caused us uh, uh, some technical difficulties down the road, but uh, it's something the fans sort of never had to suffer through because we stayed late fixing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
but uh, but in terms well, of what we wanted to do creatively, this was the one that I thought uh, this is where we're going to start our experimentation with sort of monochromatic color schemes or doing something that's not series-based. A lot of series have their standard day and standard night, and this was our first one where we're going to design it ah. specifically only for this uh, villain. Well, it looks terrific in the end, so all the trouble paid off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vic, I have a question in general about your roles in the show. Because as you were a supervising director for the the run of the show, but you also directed several episodes directly to to use a lot of similar words. What's the difference between those two roles and how you approach them on an episode basis? Well, you know, I directed the first episode that Greg wrote, and you know, I I, I think my directing that is a lot like Greg writing the first one. It's sort of like the help, sort of maybe have a set a template for a style of, of like how you want the other episodes to be, you know, in the first episode, um, you know, when we were making that animatic, uh, we were, or I was putting in things like at the end, Hey, let's have Spidey webs dissolve at the end, just like in the comic books. Uh, let's have this half Spidey mask on his face. Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to come up with the coolest Spidey sense we could. And finally, it's like, let's just have squiggles like Ditko did. You know, so you kind of make those decisions then as a hands-on director of that episode. Um, and then as a supervising director, you're sort of like trying to make sure that is a sort of a global thing. Um, uh, I, I didn't want all the directors to literally be exactly like me. I wanted each of them to bring in their personalities and their styles into the shows, which they did, but there were certain global things I wanted in there. So I guess the main difference is when you're directing, it's very hands-on. You're very hands-on, scene-by-scene, sort of like uh, uh, working with the storyboard artist and uh, deciding how, what the shots are going to be and, and the choreography definitely for that episode. As a supervising director, it, you know, you're sort of like giving those global notes to the director, making sure they're sort of on track to do the same thing. Um, the, do you guys remember the Comic Con promo by any chance? The rooftop yeah. fight? Yes, I do. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that was another example of, okay, we're going to sort of establish, like Spider-Man's going to use his webs in all these creative ways where he maybe doesn't always directly kick you in the face or punch you in the face, but he's going to web, he's going to web you and throw you into five guys or something like that. So, uh, once you hands-on do that, then you globally as a supervising director sort of try to hopefully maintain that we're going to have that kind of choreography throughout. Uh, just as a sort of technical follow-up question, who, is it the episode director, him or herself, or do you choose who is going to be boarding specific scenes and delegating out the roles for the production of the episode? Well, when I'm, when I'm, at, the, at the start of the season, when we're putting a crew together, I'm, I'm the one hiring the crew. Um, so uh, I'm hiring the uh, animators overseas as well. I mean, I'm doing that with the, the studio. I'm doing that also with Greg's input as well. Um, but, but basically, it's me. Like, once I've pitched, like, the, how we want to do this, I'm trying to staff it with guys that I feel have that sensibility to do it. Now, when I'm hands-on directing an episode, I will assign the board artist that's already on staff kind of sort of cast them specifically to uh, a sequence. So there's certain board artists who are like super strong in acting, in posing. And so I might give them the bugle scenes, you know, 
And there are other ones who are just super clever and talented when it comes to coming up with choreography. Uh, and you'll give them the action sequences. So, so episodically, I, I don't do that for the other directors. That's sort of their call with, with board artists we have. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thanks. Okay. Zach, I believe you had a question. By the way, let me just add on to that. On the lizard episode, if you watch the subway fight in the tunnels, there are a couple of like, if you free, were to freeze frame it, are like there are shots right out of some old comic books of Spider-Man fighting the lizard. And you know that, by the way, is all Adam Van Wick and, and Dave Bullock. You know, as they were getting into you know building that fight, they were like, hey, let's these would be like cool things for the fans to see. You know? Now, speaking of the fans, I was going to ask, Vic, have you gotten your uh, Blu-ray yet? <laughs> I haven't gotten my Blu-ray yet. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm just going to tell you, this episode and all of them, uh, I've watched almost all of them now on the Blu-ray. They look fantastic. Oh. So, you have so whatever. the show all over again for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I've this got episode. I Blu-ray set of Spider-Man. Oh. I got the Spider-Man on Blu-ray thing. I just don't have a Blu-ray player. Oh. <laughs> I think we all... But my, oh, we talked ahead. about once my kid's done with uh, school for the summer, he's going to go help me pick one out. And remember, there you need an HDMI cable, too. <laughs> Some of them you come know, with it, Greg. You know, your mention of the Blu-ray just reminded me of one other uh, difference between episode directing and supervising directing um, because of how Greg sort of orchestrated this story. The story is 26 episodes long. It's not just, you know, an episode. So, I mean, as you know, there'll be scenes in some episodes that might be 10 seconds long or 20 seconds long that pay off two episodes later. So, so, so the episode directors are very caught up and focused on their episodes. And sometimes because they're adding all these cool action things, we'll have long episodes and you're always looking for, well, what can you cut? And sometimes they'll look at those scenes and think, well, that has nothing to do with this episode. It can go, but because I know the storyline, you know, because I'm producing this with Greg, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, help, I help protect that, you know, and find other things to cut. So supervising director has to know, you know, the whole arc um, uh, and make sure, you know, all the pieces visually go together to, to support, especially this is the story that Greg put together. And you kind of took that into uh, going with um, Young Justice, right? That type uh, of relationship. I, I didn't work. I, I was not Greg's partner on Young Justice. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought you were. Yeah, I was lucky enough. I, I was a guest director for one episode. Okay. That's where uh, I probably got the mistake. By the way, that episode turned out great. But yeah, oh, my thanks. partner on Young Justice was Brandon Vietti. So in other okay. words, on Young Justice, Brandon was doing what Vic was just describing for Vic. In other words, Vic was focused on his one episode, and in that case, it was Brandon's job uh, to uh, make sure that he knew the big picture so, you know, he could help Vic on that level. Um, right. Vic, I think, was mostly pretty busy at the time. You were doing Mystery Inc., right? Yeah, I was doing... Uh, so you had a little downtime to help us out, I think. Yeah, I had a little... I had, like, about a month... Uh, I was doing post-production of uh the first season so uh so i had some extra time that i could do this and i was like thrilled to do it because i think young justice is a great show and 
Of course, I'm a, a fan of Greg's, and I'm also a fan of Brandon's. And I believe yeah. Artemis's design is based on your daughter's? <laughs> That's what Greg said. <laughs> yeah, in part. I mean, Vic's um, daughter, when I first met her, last time I saw her, she wasn't blonde anymore. But when I uh, uh, first met her, uh, she was, you know, she's a beautiful girl. She, but yeah, she's blonde and Korean. And... Uh, and it was a great look. Uh, Artemis is blonde and Vietnamese, so it's not literal. It's not never meant to be literal, but uh, you know there was an aspect of inspiration to that from Vic's daughter. I never knew. We're that. sort of way off topic. Now, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I'm gonna come back to Spider-Man. We were talking about designs. The other thing I would, uh, I just wanted to put out there because uh, I'm also such an admirer of, of Sean's work. You know, uh, whenever I sort of read reviews of the show. Everybody loves the show. And it's, it's like, those, but there's sort of like every once in a while I'll read. But once I got sort of used to the design, then I, you know, that kind of a thing. The, the irony of that is, you know, as great as the writing is and the storyboarding and the action was, it's like the one thing our show was, our show was only really nominated for one uh, award, you know, the Annie Awards are the Oscars for animation, and Sean Galloway was our one nomination. Isn't that correct, Greg? Yeah, yeah. So uh, huge contribution. And to be honest, he really should have won. Won, <laughs> you know, yeah, he lost to to uh, Kung Fu Panda, and they were just reusing designs from the movie, which I thought was sort of a, a kind of unfair. Advantage, in other words, the designer who won the Annie for the movie Kung Fu for designing the characters in the movie Kung Fu Panda also won the designs for uh, television. I mean, won the award for designing those same characters in television. They were the exact same design. Yeah. Um, and maybe he did one or two additional designs, but fundamentally, all the leads were the exact same characters. So he, in essence, won the award twice for doing that one thing. And I'm not knocking his designs. They're great, but, you know, Sean created all the, that stuff from, you know, scratch. Yeah. And it, it was a challenge because, you know, we wanted, a, on the one hand, the stuff to feel very contemporary, to be in Sean's style. We weren't trying to change who Sean was. Um, and yet we wanted every single character from Flash Thompson through Doc Ock to be very iconic. And so that you'd see the character and you wouldn't go, hmm, I wonder which one that's supposed to be. You'd go, no, that's that's Doc Ock, you know, or yeah, that's yeah. J. Jonah Jameson or, or whatever. And, and I think Sean did just an amazing job at translating all the work of so many comic book artists and writers and um, into a unified, coherent, cohesive style that still felt classic and iconic, but was fundamentally contemporary and fundamentally cheap. Yeah. I mean, um, and, you know, it, it, and so, it, yeah, it I, I feel of, like... Yeah, it, it definitely... It, it deserved the award. It stood out from sort of uh, what we had seen before. And as Greg said, it helped us really animate some over-the-top action sequences. I mean, these were some long action sequences that we had on our show. Um, yeah. And the animators are able to pull it off because of the design. And I love those action 
sequences is, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, especially the season two one with Venom. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was fun. But we'll discuss that in depth later on. Here's a question for Greg. I really liked how you updated Martha Connors through the modern age. She wasn't just a housewife this time. You actually made her a scientist. Yeah, I mean, part of that uh, was pragmatic. We wanted Martha to be a presence in the show. Um, and if she was just, I, I'm not knocking housewives at all. I'm just saying that if she, if she was at home, then we never would have seen her. Um, and so by making her a scientist in her own right, uh, it allowed her to be uh part of the action, so to speak. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. Um, she uh, was present in the lab. It allowed the two of them to function as sort of surrogate parents, in a sense, for uh, Pete and Gwen and Eddie. Um, and uh, it allowed us to, again, get a better sense of Curtis Connors because we met her and through and because she was there, there was reason for Billy to be at the lab. It was not just, oh, look, I'm visiting. You know, it, it, both his parents are there, so it makes sense that the kid is, you know, uh, around um, after school kind of thing. Um, and so that was a pretty easy decision to make. And then on top of that, it sort of helps explain how they know each other, and it makes her, you know, smart and a scientist and all this stuff. So it, it easily helped us create, I think, a stronger character. Of course, I also want to give a lot of credit uh, to Kath to see who did the voice of Martha Connors. Um, Kath is, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal, who I literally used in every show I've ever worked on because she's just so good. Um, but, you know, that was a great couple. Dee is Kurt and Kath is Martha. You know, you, you can't do much better than that. Um, and again, a lot of credit always to Jamie Thomas and our voice director who gets just great stuff from these people too. Uh, Vic, I have a question for you uh, more about just the general direction that animation has taken over the course of your career. When you started in the late eighties, they still had a lot of ink and paint and we were starting to get into more of a digital process where to now it's highly digital. How has that changed the approach to animation over that time period? Well, interestingly enough, when it comes to 2D animation, which is what Spider-Man is, and Mr. Incorporated, the Young Justice, uh, the animators overseas pretty much work exactly the same as 25 years ago. I mean, they're working on at animation desks and animation paper, <laughs> flipping paper. So that part is still pretty old school. Um, it's the process after that. So you know, they'll scan in that artwork and then, then it gets colored digitally and all the camera work is done digitally. Uh, and then you can add after effects like smoke and lightning and things like that digitally. But that's what animation vehicles, often, still, often we do the vehicles in CGI, but with tin shading to... Um, yeah, but the Exactly. But the character stuff is still, it's hand-drawn on paper and... Um, uh, as I described it. On the front end, the storyboarding, yes, the artists uh, are now working in Storyboard Pro or Toon Boom. They're drawing on Cintiqs, but they're still drawing. I mean, it's it's just, you know, it's a pen on a screen instead of a pen on paper, but they're still drawing. So the biggest um, challenge for, you know, the storyboard artist transitioning from paper to that is just remembering to save your work. 
the, but the thought, thought process and the, and the drawing ability uh, is the same. You still have to have it, you know, uh, to be able to do it. Um, uh, uh, the painters are. Uh, I, th- I think color and camera is the biggest difference from before. You know, in the background and the colors are done digitally. You can do these cool, great texture effects on backgrounds with digital brushes. You know what I mean? Um, so that's the, that's the biggest difference. And, and like Greg said, uh, we can now have some vehicles and some background elements. Uh, if you want to have it blend into the look of your show, they'll build it in CG and, and render it in, in it's what it's like a tune shader way where it still has the outlines, but it's colors. It kind of looks like a, you know, a cell. Um, but it's, it's strangely, it just feels like it's not that different as everyone would expect, you know, uh, a 2d show now to a 2d show then, but what we are seeing are a lot of flash only shows or CG shows. And those are, uh, definitely uh, after the storyboard process, you know, something different. Um, and it's a whole different uh, a ball, ball of wax, you know. Um, you, you're a little bit more freer with the camera and can maybe do some more live action-y sort of shots with CG. Um, but in terms of, like, you know, working on The Spectacular Spider-Man, it wasn't like a world of difference from, I think, doing something like Gargoyles, except for the few things I, I mentioned. Uh, since you brought it up, I just have one extra question um how with the a lot of the animation being done in korea overseas how do you manage that relationship between you and greg and that overseas production well you know it's uh with with the help of your production staff okay so like it's a team effort you know on this show we had wade wazinski um uh helping us there but it's like constant emails and communication with overseas you know uh that's that's one thing that's the modern one thing that's changed from the Gargoyles days because in the Gargoyles days it was faxes. Exactly. So I was going to say that's the difference. <laughs> that's the big difference today. Like it's like how we're communicating now with Skype. You know, um, it's like that's a huge difference. We can have these Skype conference calls. Uh, you know, like at seven o'clock at night here. That'll be ten in the morning there, and it's, it, it's as easy as to do as this interview. Um, so it's sort of constant contact between your production staff and them. Any creative things uh, would either go to me or I or I or I send them to the episode director if I needed to. Uh, and then um, you go there, you know. So I went there. I went to all the studios in person um, at a certain point in the production to, to just sort of make sure they were all on track because uh, you know it was three different studios and we. We're trying very hard to, you know, make it as as seamless as possible. Uh, There's some horror stories of studios getting work from overseas that isn't quite up to snuff. Did you guys have any unfortunate problems like that, or was it smooth sailing? I I gotta say, you're right what you just said. Um, I've been in shows where there's like tons of retakes, but I would say from an on model or animation perspective. We didn't have tons of retakes. I, I think that has to, a lot to do with the design of the show, um, uh, you know, where we really pared down the detail. I, you know, our retakes are more um, 
maybe we we wanted to like play a different idea a little bit better, so we're kind of coming up with something new on the spot. But in terms of being on model animation, I'd say generally no. We had one studio though who it, you know on this show I wanted like a real squash and stretch feel to it, but not just with the action, but even with the acting. So like like if, for example, if you watched like a movie Mulan between the, and the scene between that captain and Mulan, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of like a little extra movement than if you were to do anime, which is just sort of a held drawing and mouths moving. So I wanted an extra bit of squash and stretch movement. So we had a studio that did a bunch of action shows, and it was difficult. I mean, it was like it, that's where the retakes were for them. So I guess I'll retract my previous answer, say in one <laughs> studio, I did have a lot of animation notes as far as the squash and stretch. And, uh, and, uh, and well, you're going to know who the studio is. Studio is what I say is, and by the time of the Rhino episode, they were nailing it, you know, because uh, the Rhino episode I thought turned out great, and they did our also our Craven episode, um, but 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 it was, generally it was not as difficult as other shows. Awesome. Turning back to the right hand side, Greg, I've got a question for you. In the comics, Billy was, has always been able to calm the lizard. In this episode. The lizard almost eats him. He doesn't succeed in calming him at all. And I remember loving that. I thought it was a great change. Of course, in the comics, they later had the lizard eat Billy. But what was your what were your thoughts doing that? Uh, well, for starters, my thought is that, and maybe it doesn't come off this way, but my thought is we wanted it more ambiguous. Um, you know, in other words, there's a moment where Billy's there and appealing to his dad, and the lizard does pause. Um, and then it seems to sort of lunge towards Billy. Lunge may not even be overstating it a little bit, um, but certainly the mouth opens, and 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 then Spider-Man intervenes. And there's some question as to what would have happened next. And that question is what I was looking for. I didn't really want it per se to be definitive that he was going to eat him. I didn't want it to be, I definitely didn't want it to be definitive that he was going to hug him or anything like that. Um, I wanted to just maintain the sense of danger um, that this was a creature and not to be trusted. Um, Not in a good versus evil sense. That's, excuse me, um, that's doesn't even come into play here any more than, you know, uh, a dog is good or evil. You know, it, it it's just uh, dangerous. It's a dangerous beast. And um, you can't take it for granted that, that just because this is his son that, that Billy is safe. Um, and so that ambiguity is what we were looking for. I think uh, what's interesting is that not just you, but many of the fans sort of wiped out the ambiguity on the other side. Now, we were afraid, I think, that it would play like, oh, he's going to be, you know, nice to Billy. And so we may have erred too far in the other direction because I didn't want it to be absolute that he was going to eat Billy either. Um, I was looking for that ambiguity. Um, But, you know, if it works for everybody, who am I to complain? (laughs) but that's what we were looking for there was this notion that um, Billy loves his dad and when he's in his right mind, of course, Kurt loves his son, but, but 
this was not Kurt in his right mind. This was not even really Kurt at all. This was a beast. And uh, I did want to ask you, Greg, uh, you didn't use the lizard, I don't think, for the rest of the series. This was his one and only appearance. Was that on purpose, or was that just you were wanting to use these other villains more so maybe than the lizard? Well, I, I think there's, you know, one of the things um, Greg said earlier, Greg Bashansky said earlier that uh, I think is true is that Lizard runs the risk of being a one-note villain, and so we wanted to use him sparingly. As I said earlier, uh, our feeling was that even though we didn't use Lizard again in the first two seasons, the fact of his having been there is an ongoing fact of life for everyone at that lab. Um, you know, it's it's something that Kurt is ashamed of, so it influences his decisions. It's something that um, Kurt can be blackmailed over um, when a certain new doctor joins the staff. Um, it's something yeah. that sort of, in essence, forces Kirk to Florida at the end of the series. Um, we did have plans to bring Lizard back. Um, specifically, we had a spring break movie in mind, uh, Victor, remember right. we were going to do the, you know, we were going to do a directed DVD movie, which was Spider-Man on spring break down in Florida, oh, wow. um, that would have involved the lizard. Um, and, um, the one thing, you know, we were talking about the radio play that, that we did at the gathering, the Gargoyles convention in 2009, which was again, just a goof. It was Gargoyles meet Spider-Man. So we shouldn't take it too seriously. But one of the things that we did in that radio play was we showed, you know, the whole Spidey gang that is uh, Peter and Flash and Kong and Liz and Gwen and Harry. They were all heading down to Florida for spring break. Um, and uh, that was just a little sort of Easter egg because our plan had been to do the spring break movie. Um, and, of course, that never happened. Um, that actually got sort of pulled back even before the show got canceled. So I think if we had done a third season, it probably would have been incorporated into the first episode or maybe the first three episodes of season three, the spring break event down in Florida. And again, that's right out of the old comics. Spider-Man going down to Florida to fight mm -hmm. the lizard in the swamp is right out of the old um, Stan Lee, uh, Steve Ditko comics. Maybe, I think it was still Ditko at that time. I'd have to check, but definitely oh, still stamped. And so, you know, the Florida Swamps thing, playing that out, was me once again just lifting from the great source material we had to work with. So that was um, our plan. We just were going to bring a whole big chunk of our cast down to San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco. Down to <laughs> I don't know where that city came from. Down to Florida. <laughs> Um, uh, with Aunt May and, and, uh, and a bunch of other, you know, characters that had a reason to be down there, in particular, uh, the Connors family. And so the lizard would have come into play in, uh, oh. in that, either in that movie or in that, the beginning of season three. And I, I just want to also mention whoever, um, had the lizard punch that alligator. I don't know who's if it was a story decision or if it was a visual decision. I love that part of the, of the episode. That was probably my you know favorite. What? I, I got to say that was Dave Bullock. You know, and um, and I, I remember being nervous about that for S and P things. I mean, we were I thought getting away with a lot of stuff in episode one or two, and um, 
but that was Dave, and, and he pushed for that, and that really, I think, opened the door to, to us even getting more uh, brutal into the thick of uh, other fights in later episodes. Hey, one other thing I want to mention about this episode, or even this three-episode arc, is, uh, and Greg may have mentioned it in past interviews, but this was green. This series was greenlit uh, at first to be four DVD movies. We were, uh, you know, these each arc, each three episode arc was to tie together and um, separately play as episodes. And we were going to animate extra footage. We did animate extra footage, and we were going to edit them all seamlessly, seamlessly together as one movie. You'd see some sequences and scenes you didn't see in the TV show. And uh, this is the only one, this lizard, lizard arc, that got released that way. So if you have that DVD, I, I would say it's a collector's item. I've got it. Yeah, yeah you can't find it that way now. Because uh, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't put any of that additional footage on the Blu-ray. No, but there's, there, there is additional footage in the... The, the the original DVD of this arc, you know, which we edited together as one seamless movie. I mean, small things like, uh, you know, in that subway scene when the lizard's going crazy and you see a, a, a police officer in the TV show, the police officer raises his gun and then it gets knocked out of his hand. But for, for example, in the extended version, he's like shooting his gun. He's shooting bullets and which you cannot do on kids TV. So we, we had little, you know, we had stuff like that. And, and more stuff uh, sprinkled through. But this is the one arc that you will see with the extra footage if you were lucky enough to bought that first DVD. Okay. Yeah, probably yeah. on eBay. Yeah, yeah, it's probably out on eBay. Yeah. Um, probably being sold for three times. Yeah, because they, they immediately re-released it. When they re-released that three-episode arc after that, it was as three episodes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've got that DVD. I, I've got it autographed by Greg, and Jen Jen wrote on the back, Norman Osborne is not the good guy. <laughs> but, anyways, <laughs> but anyway... Greg, take us out. Yeah, on a personal note, I just recently gave the Blu-ray set to my niece for her second birthday, something that the parents can watch, and she's not actually my niece. She's just the daughter of two really close friends of mine who I've known forever, and she got it, and she immediately read spectacular Spider-Man. She knew Spider-Man. She didn't know the word spectacular, but she read it. It's a very smart girl, two years old, and she loves the show, and it's her introduction to Spider-Man, and um, so you're hitting the young audience. A young, a young two-year-old girl loves the show so far. Well, that's what we wanted to do. I mean, when Greg and I got together and talked about this, it's like we wanted this to play for you and for your dad and for the teenager and for this little girl. We wanted everyone we wanted it to be for everybody. Well, you guys succeeded in that regard. Absolutely. Definitely. So. Oh, thank you. Love the show and love the episode. Yes, sir. Well, um, I guess we'll wrap it up there because uh, we only have limited time with you guys. We appreciate you guys coming on for the show, and uh, thank you both, Greg and, uh, and Vic. Glad oh, you have Greg, anything you want to plug? You can do it. Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's do our plugs. Yeah, Greg, you got, you got your books to plug, right? I always have the books to play. <laughs> um, I uh, have my novel, Reign of the Ghost, came out this past December. It's R-A-I-N, Reign of the Ghost. You can get it on Amazon uh, or other websites like that, or you can go to a bookstore and get it. If they don't actually have it on the shelf, they can order it for you. Um, it's my first novel. It's part of a book series. The second book in the series, which is called Spirits of Ash and Foam, 
is out on July 8th. Um, I'm also, I guess this week, plugging, uh, I'll be at Califer um, on uh, June 1st, uh, doing a, actually a Gargoyles 20th anniversary panel with Frank Parr um, in Irvine, California at 2 p.m. And uh, I'm one of the executive producers of Star Wars Rebels, which comes out this fall. Yeah, we're seeing more and more about Rebels yeah. as uh, as it gets closer. So it, it's I'm excited to see it. So uh, definitely, Vic, did you have anything? Excuse me. Did you have anything to plug? Well, I cannot uh, say what it is until this company announces it. But I'm the executive producer of a new project at Hasbro Studios, and hopefully, sometime maybe before the end of the year. Uh, they they will uh, announce it, but it's going to be. I'll, I'll say this: it's going to be very cool, and um, and uh, I will be with Greg in uh, Colorado at that comic convention um, on a Spider-Man panel and a Gargoyles panel. Uh, I think it's June sixteenth. Awesome. I think. Uh, yeah, that's Denver Comic Con. We'll both yeah. be there. Well, that's not too far away from me. I may have to make plans to go to Denver. Cool. So, definitely. But thank you guys for being on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I want to thank uh, Gerard Delatour and Greg Pachansky for being on the show once again. Um, also want to point out real quick, uh, next episode we're going to be covering uh, this natural selection. And we're going to have it with myself, Jesse Garrett, and Greg Pachansky. So stay tuned for that one. Um, I want to thank... Greg Wiseman and Victor Cook for their contributions on the episode. They did a really great job and uh, always appreciate Greg coming on and talking with us every month. And uh, we'll have uh, Victor Cook on soon. I don't, uh, I won't say when, but we'll have him on back on soon. He was really fun to have on. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap the episode up there and uh, be sure to look, uh, to look for more episodes of this and all three of the new podcasts on uh, spidey-do.com network. So just keep stay tuned to spidey-do.com. We'll have more from Mayday Mondays and we'll have more from Clone Saga Chronicles coming your way as well as Spectacular Radio. So we'll see you next time here on Spectacular Radio, a spidey-do.com production. <laughs>